Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. How we manage our minds is the single most important contributor to our mental and physical health. You've heard me say this so often. And on the podcast today, I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking with Professor Ellen Langer, who is a professor in the psychology department at Harvard University, where she was the first woman to be tenured in the department. She has been described as the mother of mindfulness and has written extensively on the illusion of control, mindful aging, stress, decision-making, and health. In fact, the movie Counterclockwise focuses on a study in which she reversed the aging process of her subjects by making them believe they were younger. Let's dive right into this fascinating discussion of mind over matter. Before we begin today's episode, I want to invite you to join me and thousands around the world doing my annual brain detox challenge. It's not too late to join. In the challenge, you will be working through my NeuroCycle app over 63 days to rewire and heal your brain, helping you kick off the new year right. There is an exclusive Facebook group where you can ask questions, get support, and find more resources. Plus, each week I host a webinar on the app where I answer your questions and share some strategies and helpful tips. To join, just check out the link in the show notes. Professor Ellen Langer, this has been a dream of mine to interview you. You're quite phenomenal. Not only are you brilliant, you're also an artist, you're a professor, you're hilarious, and you have a <laughs> br- br- absolutely brilliant way of explaining, explaining what has been my passion for 38 years. You've been the inspiration for so much of my work as well. And thank you for what you do. And thank you for coming on this podcast. Finally, I'm so thrilled to interview you. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. I could I could listen to you all day, and I know that my listeners and viewers are going to have the same reaction. But you've been called uh, the mother of mindfulness, and I'd love to start there because I think that is a great place to start where you literally explain what mindfulness sure. means without the meditation and how we yeah. can tend to be mindless. Take it away. Yeah. Okay. So when people hear the word mindfulness, they tend to think of meditation. Meditation is fine, but this is very different. Meditation is a practice that you engage in to result in post-meditative mindfulness. Mindfulness, as we study it, is immediate. And it's not a practice. It's just a way of being. And it's a way of being that comes about once you recognize you don't know. None of us know. Everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. So you can't know. And that also makes everything new. Now, we've been taught by parents, the media, certainly in schools, absolutes. And these absolutes lead us to think we know. And when you think you know, then you don't pay any attention. So, yeah, and for me, my life changed many years ago. I was at a horse event, and this man asked me if I'd watch his horse for him because he was going to get his horse a hot dog. Well, I'm so glad you're telling this story. Sorry to interrupt you, but I was going to say, don't forget the hot dog for the horse story, please. (laughs) Yeah, I know, but people may get tired of hearing it, but no, I I'm tired of talking about it because it was so mind-blowing for me. You know, I'm Harvard, Yale all the way through. I know for sure, Caroline, horses yeah. don't need me, but, you know, I want to be nice and I don't want to be rude and laugh at it. It's like, okay, I'm happy to watch your horse. He goes and gets his horse a hot dog. The horse comes back and the, ho- the horse comes back and he comes back 
gives the horse the hot dog, and the horse eats it. And oh my God, that meant to me that everything I thought I knew could be wrong. Now, some people might be upset about that, but for me, it actually was almost from the beginning great fun because it meant that everything is possible. And it also meant that all those kids in school who weren't as neurotic as I was and didn't memorize everything might actually know more than I do. So I like that. But so if you recognize you don't know, then you sit up and pay attention. If your audience knew what I was going to say next, why would they listen? All right. So Mm -hmm. if you don't know, you're, you're there. A way to become there or get there, whatever, is by taking things that you think you know and just walk outside your house. You know, you've done it every day for however old you are or have lived there and just notice new things. And then you see the things you thought you knew, you didn't know as well as you thought. One of the things that you probably also heard me say a number of times, but yeah. you never see this to amaze me how I come up <laughs> with the exact same things. And it's mindful, you know, it's not, I'm saying yeah. the same thing, but I'm present while I'm saying it. Exactly. And then if I asked you, how much is one plus one? Let me ask you, how much is one plus one? Well, I know the answer because I know what you're going to say. It's one. <laughs> Okay. All right. But if you were a normal person, not an extraordinary person, you're going to say two. That's one of the one things that we're sure of. This is one thing we know. But it turns out, as you've already revealed, one plus one is not always two. If you add one cloud plus one cloud, one plus one is one. One pile of laundry plus one pile of laundry, one plus is one. One watt of chewing gum plus one. one. Okay. So in the real world, one plus one probably doesn't equal two as often as it does. Now, if somebody right after we finished talking, said to you, and it's not likely to happen, but Caroline, how much is one plus one? And you hadn't heard me speak or you hadn't uh, um, heard this before. You'd now, you would immediately first just say two, but now you're in a whole different place. Now you'd look at the context and your answer would be something like, it's probably two or it's often two or it could be two, which is very different from that certainty. And it's a certainty that keeps us mindless. And the research we've done now for over 40 years has shown that virtually all of us are mindless almost all the time. Now, the problem is when you're mindless, you're not there. So you're not there to know you're not there, right? But the research makes clear that we're hurting ourselves. We're not as healthy, as happy, as effective as we otherwise could be. And when you think about it, it's so easy You know, you don't have to go through a long course or anything else. All you need to do is know you don't know so that you notice. Then you see that what you're noticing changes depending on context and perspective. But the thing that I find most fun about all of it is that this act of noticing is the essence of engagement. So it feels good. So it's easy. It feels good. It makes us happy or healthy or relate. Everything improves with it. You know, which is nice because oftentimes people want to achieve some goal and, oh, you know, they don't have the patience, the money, the whatever to get there. Here, this is readily available and equally available to all of us. Oh, you just said so many things there that are just uh, like gold. And I love the statement that certainty keeps us mindless. And, you know, it just makes me think of all the just the things that are going on in this country at the moment and around the world and how people can get so, you know, people end up getting, they think they're so certain and it creates mindlessness, which it leads to all the animosity we see in that kind of, exactly. I mean, so many different aspects. And you speak about this as well in the field of medicine. But before we 
jump into that, I'd love you to just talk about the chambermaid study because that's one that I have of yours that I've quoted you so many times. Okay. And it's just so powerful. Can I go back to the beginning? Absolutely. Go back okay. to the beginning. Go whatever order you want. Ellen, this Absolutely. is your platform. Sorry, I get so excited that I want to we'll ask you all these million forth. things. We will. I've got a list of questions. Whatever you don't cover, I'll shoot in afterwards, but I'm sure you'll cover it all. So just take the floor. Okay. So many years ago, my mother had breast cancer that had metastasized to her pancreas. That's the end game. And then magically, it was just gone. And the medical world couldn't explain it. And I have two pancreas stories. Most people don't even have one. But the other one that's going to be relevant, if I remember where I'm going with this, was I was married when I was very young. Then the new book that I wrote, The Mindful Body, started off as a memoir. So there are lots of personal stories in there, what have you. And I tell this story that I, being very young, but trying 19, going on 30. And so we went to Paris for a honeymoon. And now I had to be very grown up because after all, I was a married woman. So we go into this restaurant and I ordered this mixed grill. On the mixed grill was pancreas. I asked my then husband, (laughs) which of these is the pancreas? He points to something. I eat with gusto. My eating is one of my favorite activities. And then comes the moment of truth. Could I eat that pancreas? Now, interestingly, I'm literally getting sick to my stomach as I start to eat it, he starts laughing. I say, why are you laughing? He said, because that's chicken. You ate the pancreas a while ago. Oh, my gosh. Right. I'm eating. I love so the story. My mind was driving yeah. uh, my body. Okay. And then I started to think about it, you know, that the world of research could not explain how you get from this fuzzy thing called a thought to something material called the body. But everybody knows You know, if you've ever seen anybody, not to take us to a place we don't want to go, but regurgitate, vomit, you start to feel sick yourself. Well, nothing is happening. Exactly. It's just your mind. Okay. And then I thought, well, what is mind and body? I mean, this is, these are just words. And I said, let's put the mind and body back together. And if we do that, wherever we're putting the mind, we're necessarily putting the body. Now, let me take a detour just for a second, because the medical model not that long ago, believed that our thoughts were irrelevant to our health. You know, yeah. it was everybody, I'm sure, believed it's nice to be happy and not nice not to be stressed. Mm-hmm. But the only way you're going to become ill is the introduction of an antigen. All right. And then things changed. And now people have often heard, I'm, I'm sure everybody's heard of the mind-body connection. Mm-hmm. If you have a connection, you still have the problem. As you get from one part of the connection, a fuzzy thought, to the material body. I'm not talking about a connection. I'm saying it's one thing. Anything that's happening on any level is simultaneously happening on every level. And and I said, let's assume this is true and see where it gets us, okay? And so the very first study I did testing the mind-body unity was the counterclockwise study. I'm told this is my most famous study. I don't know. All I know is that um, if you watch The Simpsons Go to Havana, they actually discuss it. So I guess it's out there. (laughs) But essentially what we did was we retrofitted a retreat to 20 years earlier and had elderly men live there for the week as if they were their younger selves. So they spoke about past events as if they were just unfolding and so on. And the results were, I think, quite remarkable where we found that just putting your mind back in time led to an in- improvement in hearing, 
vision, memory, strength, and they look noticeably younger, all without any medical intervention. Now, some people, you know, when that study first came out, some critics said, you, you can't turn the clock. I wasn't turning the clock back. No, <laughs> you know? you Whatever time it is now, that's what time we can assume it is. What my intention was, and what the results revealed, that if we, if we can prime our younger cells, we bypass all those things that say we can't. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it reveals an enormous amount of control over our health and well-being. And, and all the studies that we'll talk about should make that even clearer. All right. So the next study done several years later was chambermaids. This, this first part was really interesting to me where is if you ask chambermaids how much exercise they're getting, they say they're not getting any exercise. I mean, that's all they're doing all day long. And, but because they believed, and many people along with them, that exercise is what you do afterward. They're just too tired to do anything because that's kind of interesting. Now, also, if you think about it, if exercise is good for you and these women, regardless of what they believe are exercising, they should be healthier than socioeconomically similar others, but they're not. Okay. So now very simple study, as many of these are, we just divide them into two groups. And we teach one of the groups that they work as exercise. They're shown that making a bed is like working on this machine at the gym and so on. Anyways, to the end of this 10-minute discussion, now they know they work as exercise. So we take lots of measures before we start, lots of measures when we finish. They're not eating any differently. The group that now believes they work as exercise and the group that doesn't realize them, they're not working any harder. Nevertheless, changing their mindset resulted in loss of weight, a change in waist-to-hip ratio, body mass index, and their blood pressure came down. Some nights it takes me a long time to fall asleep. And the more stressed out I get about being exhausted the next day, the worse it gets, as you've probably experienced. It's so frustrating, especially when I'm traveling for work and have a full day planned ahead, and it especially seems to happen in those circumstances. But... Ever since I started adding magnesium breakthrough to my nightly mind management routine, I've been able to quiet my mind and sleep better. It really has made the world of difference. It is estimated that over 75% of the population is magnesium deficient. And what most people don't know is that even if they're taking a magnesium supplement, they're still deficient because they're not getting all seven forms. Magnesium breakthrough is the ultimate way to give your body all seven forms in one supplement. Unlike other magnesium supplements that might be giving you one to two forms of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough contains all seven forms of magnesium designed to help calm your mind and help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. And not only does Magnesium Breakthrough help you sleep better, it also helps calm your mind and allows you to feel grounded and relaxed during the day and especially before bed. In addition to experiencing relaxed sleep, Magnesium Breakthrough also helps support digestion, muscle recovery, and healthy bone density. So don't miss out on the most relaxing sleep ever with Magnesium Breakthrough. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to biooptimizers.com forward slash Dr. Leaf and use the promo code Dr. Leaf 10 during checkout to save 10%. That's biooptimizers.com forward slash Dr. Leaf with the promo code Dr. Leaf 10 during checkout to save 10%. The link and details will be in the show notes. Now, let me tell you something I don't usually say when I'm describing the study. You know, if it had just been weight loss, 
everybody yeah. would be interested in it, but people wouldn't buy it because it doesn't sound science in. Yeah, yeah. By saying body mass and you know, uh, waist to hip ratio, now all of, you know, which is it's yeah. kind of strange what things we will accept as true exactly. and, and what we won't. But nevertheless, and so now in the mind. That goes body, to your point. Sorry, Ellen, just to interrupt you there. That, that goes to your point that certainty blocks is creates mindlessness. So if you yeah. have the expectation that you want a certain way that something is said in order to believe that it's true, it blocks the mindfulness aspect of what you can get out of exactly. that. Exactly. And but so then we went on to do many studies, many of these mind-body unity studies. I don't want to tell you all of them. People can read about them. But let me see which one shall I tell you about. I'll tell you about the diabetes one. Okay, yes, so we have people come into the lab who have diabetes, type 2. And we give them all sorts of tests and measures. And then we set them down at a computer. And the reason for this setup will be clear in a moment. Next to the computer is a clock. And we tell them, we want you to play games, but change the game, computer game you're playing every 15 minutes or so. That's just to ensure that they'll look at the clock. Unbeknownst to them, the clock is rigged. For a third of the people, the clock is going twice as fast as real time. For a third of the people, it's going half as fast as real time. And for a third of the people, it's real time. And the question we're asking is, does blood sugar level follow real or perceived time? And the answer is perceived time. Critical. I think virtually everything is a function of our perceptions, our beliefs. So in the most recent of these, we inflict a wound. I shouldn't say inflict the wound. It sounds like we're cutting people up. Yeah, which would have made the the results even stronger, but yeah, uh, a you sadist can't really cut people and, up. <laughs> and the review committee wouldn't let me do it, even if I oh. wanted to. So it's a minor wound, but it's still a wound. And again, I, and I've become clock obsessed. So again, we have people in front of a clock that's rigged in the same way. For a third of the people, it's going twice as fast as real time. For a third, half as fast, and for a third, real time. The wound heals based on perceived time, clock time, not real time. And this is very important wow. because, you know, every time you have some procedure, medical procedure, mm-hmm. and you ask the doctor or the doctor just volunteers the information about how long it's going to take to heal, he's setting expectations. And I think we're not healing as quickly as we could be. So we have a study going on right now with various disorders, cataract surgery, several things where instead of giving the longest healing time, oh, you'll heal before six weeks, something like that, or the average healing time is whatever it is, they're given the the quickest healing time that's known and told some people heal even as quickly as and possibly even more quick. And now we want to see how long people actually do heal. People don't realize, and we have such a strong sense of, the body is separate from the mind that, you know, we think the body is just doing whatever it's doing on its own. And you know, so if you talk about fatigue, mm-hmm. fatigue is interesting, again, because, you know, you, you go as far as you can go and then the body just won't let you go further. But it's not true. So we did the first of these, which is very simple. We just had, I, I would ask people, do 100 jumping jacks and tell me when you're tired. And they get tired around 70. I tell a whole other group, do 200 jumping jacks and tell me when you get tired. And they get tired at about 140. All right. And, you know, so we have lots of studies with this. 
But, you know, I asked my students, how far is it possible to run without stop before you get tired and you just can't go another inch? And, you know, these are Harvard students. So they know I wouldn't ask the question unless it was more than a merit. So it has to be more than 26. And as I'm fond of saying now, then it becomes like an auction. 30, 35, 40, but they no, never have gone past 50. And even when they're saying 50, the one who says 50, everybody else is groaning. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, then I show them a video. This is wonderful. It's of a tribe in Copper mm-hmm. Canyon, Mexico, the Tarayamara, who are able to run more than 200 miles without stopping. Now, what's important to see, the difference between 26 miles, a marathon, 50 miles, and 200 is enormous. And yeah. I think that difference is the difference that we would experience with virtually everything. You know, think about it. We have a sense that as you get older, you just fall apart, right? And so if you, you know, if I hurt my wrist, I'd probably say, well, look, you know, I'm so old. What do you expect? And I wouldn't do anything. Whereas if I were 25 years old, where it's not expected that I'm going to fall apart, I'd, I'd do something to fix it. And same with vision. People assume that you get older, you, you, know, you can't see. We see all these old people with glasses, hearing aids you can't hear. And we go back to that counterclockwise study where without any intervention, they were able to see. And so some very easy to do things follow from, let's say, the vision. You know, there's something very bizarre. I don't know how the medical world comes up with these things. To test vision, they yeah. have you look at a chart of letters that are out of context, make no sense, in a setting that's stressful to start. Most mm-hmm. people don't like going to the doctor. And, you know, and then they give you a number. And people then believe that that's the way they see. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, Caroline. I know if yeah. I'm hungry, I can see that restaurant sign very far away. <laughs> I know that in the morning, I can see better than I can in the you know late afternoon yeah. Yeah. when I'm getting tired. I see things that are moving differently and in colors differently from when they're still in black and white. And we lose all of that with that medical measure. Now, the medical world can't test our blood pressure, pulse, our vision you know, every hour. You know, so yeah. I'm not faulting them, but it's still the case that everything is changing. And we don't want to capture ourselves at any one moment and assume, boom, that's the way we are. And so I'll talk in a moment, if you want, about the remedy for chronic illness. But let me use the example now with vision. Unless you're virtually blind, you know, you're wearing glasses, you can't see anything without them. It might be useful for people not to wear their glasses, you know, and notice when they need and when they need them, put them on and then they don't need them anymore because they're training our eyes to be dependent on the glasses in the same way we would train our bodies if we took a laxative every day. We'd learn to, to normally function without it. And then you would see, you know, so for me, if I did wear glasses, I would see, you know, at around four o'clock in the afternoon, I, I'm better off with the glasses on. Well, then if I say why, you know, because I'm tired. Well, if you're tired, yeah. take a nap. Have an energy bar. This is something I'm also fond of saying now. When I was even your age, we called them candy. I'm 60, by the way. Okay, well, you're still much younger than I. You're 60, <laughs> but you look 40. So, oh, thank right. you. So let's it's say, mind. You know, 
<laughs> but I think even when 60 is what, a lot of years ago, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know, that one, well, <laughs> today you're 60. I don't know what I'm thinking. <laughs> but no, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is very yeah. simply, at some point in time, we didn't have energy bars. We had candy Yeah, bars. we didn't. We had candy bars, but which yeah. is Which it changes our expectations, right? You eat a candy bar, you feel guilty. You eat an energy bar, you feel energized. Yep. But the the fatigue work I just told you about is that even if that energy bar had nothing to do with energy, mm-hmm. the belief that it does would probably go a long way. You know, let me, I'm in 12 different places at once, but. No, you're being brilliant. Okay, okay, good. Now, you're doing so, brilliantly. Uh, can, can I comment on a couple of things? Because you've said so much. No, no, you're not stuff. allowed to say anything. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to disrupt you, but I want to emphasize because you've said so many great things. The, the, the mind thing of, of time, mind is beyond time. So I, I so agree, so agree with you there. Mind is beyond time. So we're not stuck in that. So we, our body's stuck in time, but our mind's not. And then the way you talk about the embodied mind, totally love that. Just a few little pointers, uh, that just things I want to emphasize for my audience because they hear me talk about things from a dissimilar sort of things, but from a slightly different angle. So I, it's, it's, this is beautiful. It's really putting color to, to so many concepts. We did some interesting work and we're doing another study at the moment with my team on the psychoneurobiological aspects, which is pretty much this mind brain body sets. It yeah. is that. It's that network. And we've seen the things like what you're saying, the impossible. Like they used to believe that telomeres took five years to change. We showed that in nine weeks of deliberate, intentional, mindful work. Oh, I'm, I didn't know you did that because yeah. I have been intending to do that for so long, but I didn't have the funds to do it. And now I yeah. don't have to. Well, that, that's, uh, can you send me that paper? Yes, I will. I'll okay. send you, I'll send you, I'll send you that. Are we, are we supposed to be talking to each other or to everybody in the audience? Well, everyone can hear, they all hear about this too, and they love it when we have these back and forth. So for sure, absolutely. But it just shows you the, the mind, what the, yeah, totally. I mean, I am everything that you say, you know, like that you gave the example of the, the eyes, what you didn't mention. And if I may just tell the audience or you tell them how you, t- if you change that chart around, instead of starting with a small oh, yes, number, start okay, with, so, yeah. yes, so I'm very bizarre. I mean, it's clear. No, you're wonderful. No, you're wonderful. Uh, you think wonderfully bizarre. So <clears throat> when most people go into the doctor's office and they're going to take the eye test, they just dutifully repeat the letter that they can see. For me, the first thing that occurred to me is that, wait a second, because the letters are all getting smaller and smaller, there's an expectation that soon I won't be able to see. So we then did a study where we reversed the eye chart, thereby reversing the expectation. Now the letters are getting larger and larger, and you're able to see things that before you couldn't see just by changing the expectation. And most people Amazing. notice how I don't breathe so that I have to, I, I don't give you a chance to respond. What we did was most people, when they're going down the eye chart, have difficulty seeing around two-thirds of the way down. Mm. So what we did was another study where we started the eye chart a third of the way down, which meant that now two-thirds of uh, that would lead to even smaller letters. And again, people could see what they couldn't see before. People don't realize how our expectations affect what we see. You know, there's a famous study that Simon and Chabriz did where they have people watching a basketball game in the middle of the basketball game, somebody dressed in a gorilla suit goes on the court. People don't see them. You don't wow. see the gorilla. You don't see. And I did a study 20 years before that that hadn't, it was nearly as dramatic and exciting, but we simply repeated a word 
in a sentence we gave people and people don't see it. And if wow. you don't see it, you just assume it's not there. You know, it's like, what is it? I'm from Missouri, show me or some something we used to say in the States. You know, if you yeah. see it, we're sure. And you can't trust your eyes. So in some sense, the more we come to know, the stupider we become because more mindless. We think we know yeah. things we don't know. The more certain we are of what we see, the blinder we become. So at, at any rate, I want to ta- talk to you for a minute about fatigue in a different way. Because I said before that, you know, you're tired, you become fatigued, but that doesn't mean that the game is over at that point. So there was a famous study. I don't know if it's, I, well, since I know about it, it's probably famous, but it was done in the 50s. And I don't know how important it was then to anybody. But it was a study that Frank Beach did. He took a little boy rat and he introduced a little girl rat. And they copulate until the little boy rat gets fatigued. He just can't do it anymore right? He needs his time off to regroup. Okay. And that's a reliable <laughs> finding. Yeah. Now, if he introduces a different little girl rat, he doesn't need that refractory period. He can go right away. Okay. So the human equivalent of that is changing the context. And when you change the context, you get renewed energy. So an image that I have, I don't have data on this, but you can imagine somebody at the keyboard word processing all day. Back is hurting, fingers yeah. hurt. And then, oh, thank goodness, it's five o'clock. I can go home and you go home and you sit down at the piano. <laughs> so you're doing the same thing, but yeah. the context is different. So, you know, you want renewed energy, change the context. I, I think it's probably also true for satiation. I'm afraid to test this, but. Let's say you start with an appetizer, then you have a main dish, and then you have dessert. I'm not so unsure. I'm Well, I'm not sure, but sure. But it yeah. could be that if you had an appetizer, you'd start the whole thing over again. Okay. That is interesting. Um, anyway, you can test that and let me know. But <laughs> anyway, one of, one of the other things that in all this talking we're doing that I don't want people to lose is science. Yeah. Uh, now, science only gives us probabilities. Mm-hmm. People don't realize that. If you do a study and then you do the exact same study, which you can never do because you're an hour older, if you were to repeat Exactly. It right it's changed. That the findings you get, you're likely to get the same findings. Not that you'll definitely get them. You're likely yeah. to. Mm-hmm. Horses in this particular study, most of the horses didn't eat meat. That's translated to absolutes. Horses don't eat meat. It's just mm-hmm. easier to teach these absolutes. But again, these absolutes lead us to believe we don't have control that we might have. You know, mm-hmm. the medical world, again, to go back to them, if you have a disease that they don't know how to cure, it's called incurable. Well, it's not incurable. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, in fact, it's, it, you know, it's seen as uncontrollable rather than indeterminate. Uncontrolled is as if we're never going to be able to do anything about it. Yeah. And determinist, who knows? And I believe there are always so things good. you can do for any of those diseases. Imagine that you, I don't want you, somebody you know and you don't like, okay? Just <laughs> has some dread disease, whatever it is. And they can't figure out how to deal with the problem itself. But if they build up the rest of the body, 
and make you strong. Surely that's going to have influence on whatever part is ailing, so to speak. The Okay, so science gives us probabilities. Those are translated by doctors, literature, the newspapers, teachers, parents as absolutes. And that keeps us thinking we know when, again, we don't. And so one of the things that, and I just told you this indirectly with respect to vision, it's true with everything. So it's going to be true for relationship satisfaction with everything. But let's go to chronic illness. Okay. So when you're told you have a chronic illness, mm-hmm. they're implicit in that is the assumption that it's going to either stay the same or get worse. Mm-hmm. Nothing stays the same. And even yeah. you know, that there'll be blips, you know, where it's a little better, then it's a little worse. And if you can catch those blips, as we'll call them, then why now is it a little better? All right. So now what we've done is to take these different diseases, I'll mention them in a moment, and we call people throughout the day. How is it now? Is it better or worse than the last time we spoke? And why? And the why is very important because then you go on a mindful search for why. And that mindfulness, you know, as you're actively noticing the neurons are firing and all of our data over so many years shows that that's literally and figuratively enlivening. So you're making yourself better. Yeah. Even if you can't figure out why is it a little better or a little worse right now. So again, three things happen. The first, when you get one of these calls and you see, hey, gee, now it's not as bad as it was before. That feels good. Second, by asking why now is it better or worse, you're becoming more mindful. That's good for your health. And third, I believe that if you're looking for a solution, you're more likely to find one. Okay, so we did this with people who have multiple sclerosis, Mm -hmm. Parkinson's, stroke, chronic pain, arthritis, and I don't remember what else. So big ones, right? And in each Mm -hmm. case, we get positive results, the the end of or significant diminution of symptoms. Right now, I came up with this because my life's work, in some sense, has been, how did that happen with my mother? These spontaneous remissions. Look at placebos. I think they're our strongest medication. You take this nothing, and then you get Mm -hmm. better. And by definition, the pill's inert. So if you're getting better, it's not the pill. What's making you better is you. It's your mind. And I, I don't understand why it, it's taken so long for people to realize the control that they actually have. We've shown, you know, most diseases, at least a third of the people who have them are, uh, respond to placebos. All right. So you can't give yourself a placebo, probably. Although I must say, let me interrupt myself and remind me where I'm going with this. I used to get motion sick. I gave a talk in Chicago and I'm a big talker, clearly. And I'm afraid I'm going to miss my plane. So I don't have a chance to take that Dramamine. So I don't get nauseous on the plane. I grab a donut and I didn't get nauseated. So I said, okay, great. (laughs) The donut became my, my placebo. (laughs) Anyways. So since you can't give yourself a placebo, this attention to variability is the alternative. So. Yeah, while we called people, everybody now, almost everybody has a smartphone. And you set the smartphone to ring in an hour. And then ask yourself, how is it now? Is it better or worse than before? And why? 
and then set it again to ring in two and a half hours. And just keep doing this throughout the day, throughout the week. And you'll be surprised, I think, at how effective this self-treatment can be. Oh, I cannot agree with you. Now, I'm not going to let you speak. One more thing. No, go for it. Go for it. Okay. So it's the same thing with stress. So let's say, this makes clear what's going on here. Let's say you are stressed all the time. Nobody is stressed all the time. But you think you're stressed all the time because when Mm -hmm. you're not stressed, you're not thinking about being stressed. Okay. So you think you're stressed all the time. And then I call you you periodically to find out are you more or less stressed than the last time and why. And after even a week's time, you discover, you know, you're maximally stressed when you're talking to Ellen Langer. The solution is easy. Don't talk to me. I'm I'm definitely not stressed talking to you, sir. (laughs) (laughs) But this is also true for all of the dispositional attributions we make for the people we care about. You're such a "Mm, whatever it is. You're always doing whatever it is, driving the person Mm -hmm. crazy. And nobody is always doing anything. Mm -hmm. And if you, again, even set your your phone to go off, is he doing it now? No. Okay. (laughs) And why isn't he doing it now? And you see that everything varies and it's our mindlessness that leads us to hold things still. And again, we ruin our relationships. But I'm talking about relationships. I said I'd give you a chance. But let me say. Oh, no, no, no. Carry on. People hear okay. me all the time. It, it, all, all I was going to do was that drama mine example. I had the same thing. I used to get so ASIC. I travel extensively. And one day I forgot to buy some or something. And so I said, okay, well, I'm tired of being to ASIC. And I said, it just stopped literally. And I've never been ASIC yeah. since. And it's like it's- 20 years. And, and then that you talk about that not always thing and setting those clocks. In one of the, the system that I've developed that we've got an app now as well, but when I do this, the research and also when people use it for themselves is you set a reminder in the app to remind yourself every two hours on yeah. whatever you've worked through deliberately intention that day because you're never, you're not always the same. And it's unbelievable how Perfect. people yeah. transform and recognize. So all the yeah. things you're saying, I totally, well, okay, totally so agree. Personal ex- so you can see how far we've both come by taking advantage of paying attention to our own yes. experience. Yes. So for me, years ago, I uh, used to wear a contact lens in one eye. So I had distance reading in one eye and distance in the other. And I come home and it's the evening and I'm now going to take the contact lens out. I'm killing myself. <laughs> Can't find the thing. Okay. Well, then I realized I never put it in. Oh my gosh. I remember the story of hearing you tell the story. My vision was fine. My (laughs) vision was fine all day. And that was the last time I wore contact lenses, glasses, or anything else. Um, Oh, so this relationship thing, this is, you know, it's so funny, Carolyn, that I've done so much research because I'm so old, you know, that you would think that I, you may be surprised at what ended up the most important finding that I've come to. Before you tell us that, you've got to tell us how old you are. Because I'm you're amazing. Oh, you, you're amazing. I mean, look at it. You just, you, you just show what, what, what you'll be, you'll be still doing this at a hundred. So. Oh, I don't expect to go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. So we, we hold things about ourselves. You know, you do something, you say, Oh, you're such a whatever. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about yourself or somebody else. And what we said just now that. You have to recognize that those things don't happen all the time. 
But so here's something that the thing that was so important to me is when I realized behavior makes sense from the perspective of the person who's doing the behavior, the mm. act, or else they wouldn't do it. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, today I'm going to be obnoxious, forgetful, uncontrollable. You know, so when they're doing these things, what is it from their, well, then it, it, I realize that if it makes sense, then everything you think about yourself that's negative, you need to find the positive alternatives. So you can't bear me, even though you're being so sweet now, because I'm so gullible. Well, from my perspective, I'm trusting. And you get on my nerves, mm -hmm. Caroline, because you're so inconsistent. That's because you're flexible. And mm -hmm. for every single negative word, there's an equally strong positive version of it's it. So now, the mistake people make is they keep trying to change that negative, but you're not doing it. You know, I want to stop That's being very gullible. good. I don't want to stop. I want to stop being gullible and I may stop briefly, but eventually I'm going to be gullible again because I value being trusting. So if you want me to stop being gullible, you have to persuade me to no longer want to be trusting. And my guess mm -hmm. is you wouldn't want to change me. And I'd have to change so you good. in the example and to stop being flexible. All right. So we did something so years and years ago. We gave people a list of behavior descriptions. I don't know if there were two or 300 of them. And mm -hmm. you were told, circle those things about yourself that you really want to change, but you have trouble changing. So I'd circle gullible, mm -hmm. impulsive, you know, who knows what. Then yeah. you turn the page over and in a mixed up order are the positive versions of these words. Now we ask people, Circle those things you really value about yourself. My being trusting, my being spontaneous. All right. So again, as long yeah. as I value being spontaneous, I'm going to at times seem impulsive. And it's, wow. you know, it, to me, it's yeah. So good. Beyond, because it's like the six of this. It makes you, it makes you less judgmental. And, mm. you know, you can't. Stop being judgmental the way most people try. They say, I don't want to be judgmental. So I think you're a, you know, but I, I'm not going to let myself feel that way. You can't, right? But yeah. when you reframe it, then there's nothing to judge, you know, and relationships. It's also might explain in part how you could have gotten involved with this person in the first place that in the second place you can no longer bear. You know, so in the first place, the person was serious and stable and maybe gullible. I don't know, maybe trusting. And then eventually, for some reason, what I say stable. So now they're boring. Trusting, we said was gullible. And what was the third thing I said? Serious. Oh, gosh, serious. Yeah. Serious. Yeah. serious yeah. But now you see them as grim. You know. <laughs> So it's the same thing. You know, yeah. Sometimes you get into the relationship because of the positive version and then get out of relationship because of the negative version. And I'm not saying people need to stay with one person for a lifetime, nor am I saying they should. You know, it doesn't matter. The point is that our relationships are essential to even our health and, mm -hmm. and our happiness. And they don't have to play out the way so many of them do. I, I think it's still half of marriages end in divorce. Yeah, it is. So. Yeah, oh, gosh. The, brilliant. So so many things I want to, to ask you, uh, so many more things. Let's quickly talk a little bit about the cow. Give us talk about the cow. The you cow. Know you, use the, 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 yeah, you show okay. that 
Yeah. I don't know if this is a, this is usually a show and tell rather than just tell, but we'll try it. So I show people, well, when I give some of these talks, an ink blot and I say, so what is it? And they have no idea, but there's always some obnoxious person, not obnoxious, excited person who makes uh, a comment. It's a cow. And you know, the only reason they know it's a cow was because somebody had told them it was a cow. Okay. So then I overlay this ink blot with the outline of a cat. Oh, and everybody sees the cat. Now, the point of this is that then I take away the outline of the cat and you can still see the cat. And I tell people that I'll meet with them 10 years from now and they'll still see the cat. Now, what this is representing is that at first we don't know. Then somebody tells us. And then we're trapped for a lifetime. And just think about if you at 20, but all of the things you believed at 20 are going to influence you at, how old are you? 60. 60. I don't know. Was I allowed to ask you? <laughs> yes, you can. I don't mind. Good. Because to me, you're still a baby. Okay. So, you know, to think, I mean, I shudder at the thought that my 15-year-old self was guiding who I am, you know, who I was at 50, 60, and so on. Yeah. And so that was also to show that that's the way we're educated. You're told one in one is two horses don't eat meat. This is, you know, and so on. And I keep trying to change the system of education, not as radically as I've tried to deal with medical issues, but perhaps that's my next venture. But we don't have to wait. If somebody is teaching us mindlessly, we don't have to believe it mindlessly. You know, if you're told this is the way you do it, you can hear it at this is one way to do it. This is a way you could do it. One in one could equal two. Horses, you know, may not eat meat. So in other words, we take the information that's given to us in this absolute form and we change it to, yeah, could be. Also could not be, you know, I, I, this example is so stupid, but it always comes to mind that when I was a child, we would take a can of frozen orange juice and you get rid of the orange juice. You make the orange juice and get rid of it. Yeah. And then you take that can and you wrap it with colored paper. (laughs) We were very creative when I was in elementary school. And then you have a pencil holder. Now, it has never been the case for me that that is a pencil holder. To me, that's an orange juice can that's being used as a pencil holder. There'll never be anything orange juicy about it again. Do you see what I'm saying? You know, so when we say this is something, then we're hurting ourselves in the future when we're trying to think of different uses for it. That takes me so much. The reason I wanted you to talk about the cow example as well is because it, it links into the concept of labels as well. You speak a bit about yeah. labels and anxiety and you have such a great, can you talk a little bit about I that? I don't remember which lab, which labeling. Uh, so basically the, the, so. I mean, this is the way we become mindless that we, yes. you know, we categorize things. Yes, and we label it the problem. Yeah. We yeah label when the we're problem. categorizing them, that's being mindful. But yes. then when we forget that they could have been put together in any number of ways, we are treating it as mindless. And so you have, I think it was in England, 
you probably know this better than I, as to why 65 became the time that one retired. Well, this was a long, long time ago. And, you know, still it's the case. I have friends that are working well into their, you know, late 70s, 80s. They they decide not to work, not because they're not capable, but they just want to do other things. But still, when you turn 65, there's that magic number and you start seeing yourself differently when, you know, it was an arbitrary decision. And I think what people need to understand is that virtually everything that is was once a decision. When it was, for it to be a decision means there was uncertainty. If there's no uncertainty, there's nothing to decide, right? If you Mm. ask me now, do I want a cup of coffee? I'm going to say, yes, I'm not going to decide I want a cup because I know I want a cup of coffee. So I'm going to end this soon and get, no, I'm joking. Anyway, (laughs) so I think there's a tendency when there's uncertainty, you make a decision and then you forget that there was that uncertainty just moments before and you act as if, That's the way it should be. So let's say you and I are going to go out to eat and we're trying to decide what we want to eat. And we say, well, should we go for Chinese food or maybe we'll go for India? And we entertain all the time. And then we decide, okay, let's go to train for Chinese food to this particular restaurant. And so then we're set to go to the restaurant and then we become aware that it's closed on Mondays. It's closed on Monday. Mm -hmm. And now we become really disappointed. But why? Five minutes earlier, we didn't even know that we wanted Chinese food. Do you see what I'm saying? As soon yeah, as I you, do. All right. We freeze our understanding and think that's the way it's supposed to be. And I think if we recognize, if, if you realize that everything that is was somebody's decision, then you you operate in the world in a very different way and come to see that everything is mutable. So when I yeah. give a talk when I was younger and, you know, I'm up here and the audience is all the way back there. And I knew that made me nervous. So I moved all the chairs. So now I'm much closer. Most people wouldn't do that as if the chairs have to be where they are. Virtually everything can be changed. And along these same lines that, you know, if you remember that there are people making these decisions about how things are going to be. And those people have biases and those people may be very different from you. And that's even the more different they are from you, the more important it is for you to rearrange things. So if I'm lecturing, sometimes I'll look in the audience. It's amazing how often there's some giant guy there. Six, five. And I'll ask him to come to the stage and we look silly together. I'm five, three on a good day now. He's six, five. I asked him to put his hand up. I put my hand over his hand. His hand is three inches longer than mine. And then I just raised the question, should we do anything physical the same way? It seems to me ridiculous. So if he's the one who decided how you hold a tennis racket, a golf club, hockey stick, anything, and I'm told this is the way you do it, I'm not going to do it nearly as well as I would if I found my own way. So rules, routines, instructions should guide what we're doing, not govern. You don't do it that way because, you know, somebody tells you this is the way to do it as if that was handed down from the heavens. It was a decision that served somebody's purpose at the time and may no longer serve your purpose. 
I have been a big fan of Bond Charge's amazing products for a while now, and I'm so excited to share with you about their amazing infrared sauna blanket. If you've been following me for a while, you know how I love the, using the infrared sauna for my mental health. However, I'm always traveling for work and often don't have access to a sauna when I need one to decompress and de-stress. This is why I love Bond Charge's infrared sauna blanket. It works by raising your heart rate to that of physical exercise so it burns calories whilst you relax and de-stress. You can burn up to 600 calories in just one session. It also helps flush out heavy metals and other toxins, supporting your mind, body and health. Plus, using an infrared sauna also helps release endorphins, which can leave you feeling euphoric after your session. It's an all-round mood booster. The Bond Charge Infrared Sauna Blanket works by using infrared light, which heats up the body directly rather than the air around you like a traditional sauna. This means you get the same benefits at a lower heat. You also do not need to have your head in the heat like a traditional sauna. I love how easy it is to use and clean and how it takes around a minute to set up. It's also super sleek and lightweight, which makes it great to travel with. Plus, the Bond Charge Infrared Sauna Blanket is made with a vegan leather and comes with free shipping and an easy returns policy with a 30-day free trial period. So, make 2024 the year you experience less stress and more relaxation, even when you're on the go. Go to bondcharge.com forward slash Dr. Leaf and use the coupon code LEAF to save 15% on your infrared sauna blanket. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R. GE.com slash leaf and use the coupon code leaf to save 15%. The link and details will be in the show notes. Oh, you know, just hearing how you've explained this, it's such, it's like music to my ears because of just the way that I've done, I've seen this all these years that I've been doing the research and working with people and working with patients and doing the research and just seeing the, how People in impossible situations, when you shift a perspective or you look at things differently, the impact and the change in a person's life that we, is just incredible. And then also the openness to, you know, the, the implications of just conversations amongst people with different ideas, yeah. the yeah. acceptance, you know, the all, how people have got so stuck in conspiracy theories and, you know, just the, how it's closed people, mindlessness it's closes everything. people's yeah. mind. Yeah. It just, it's the openness that is so. Missing. Yeah. That if you know you don't know, you become more open to conversation. And our research also shows that people who are more mindful, when we make people mindful, they're seen as authentic, trustworthy, and charismatic. So you don't lose anything Mm -hmm. by approaching, you know, I think people mistakenly think they should be confident, which is good. But they think that confidence should rest on certainty. And I, I suggest a very different way of organizing yourself. You want to be confident and uncertain. And the confidence nice. uh, comes from recognizing nobody knows. You know, mm. and you know, you end up in a place, uh, people, I think some people have the misimpression of me. I don't think that I'm any better than anybody else, but I also don't think anybody is better than I am. You know, that what determines better, who writes the rules. And that's something that, you know, I use an example of tennis a lot because I I enjoy playing tennis. And I know that if I design the game, because the rules of the game, again, weren't handed down from the heavens, I'd have three serves rather than two serves. Because right now, when I play doubles, I kill that ball. It doesn't go in. And now I have this wuss. Second serve, so I don't double fold. If I had three serves, I'd kill it. 
I'd learned from there that. I'd be able to try again. And then I'd still have my backup third serve. All right. And so Love when it. you recognize, so, and I know that in order to have professional tennis, you know, we have to follow some rules, yeah, yeah. but we have to recognize that all of that was arbitrary. So I know mm-hmm. that if I wrote the rules to whatever the game, if you wrote the rules, you would be better at it. And then you don't feel as bad not being you know, top of the class. If that makes any sense. Oh, um, to- totally, totally. It's yeah, my, another one of my long-term goals, and these books indirectly start us on that path, but it's to take the vertical where, you know, you and I sit near the top and make it horizontal. So I wrote this little song that I'm not going to sing for you, but I did this for my grandkids when they were five. Everybody, it's to the, do you know the old Sarah Lee commercial? I everybody so. doesn't know something, but nobody, do- I mean, everybody doesn't like something, but nobody doesn't like Sarah Lee. Okay. So it goes. Oh, yeah. I remember that. It's story. very simple. Everybody doesn't know something, but everybody knows something else. Everybody can do something, but everyone can do something else. And, you know, so I'm in the car with my grandkids and one of them starts to whistle. I say, Theo, you're such a good whistler. And then his twin brother says, Grandma L, when Theo was learning to whistle, I was learning something else. And it, you know, it had such an impact wow. on me because he's not going to feel bad about himself that this other person, his brother, can whistle better than he can. And wow, that's, that's the way powerful. The world has been organized. You know, we have those who can and everybody else feels bad. And it, it's a, it's a lie, even with, you know, grades in school. You have somebody given a D or failed for reasons that probably make some sense. They're not going to be happy campers. You get a B or a C. Well, that means you're average. Who wants to be average? And then you have the A students. So we're the A students, but we're not happy either. Basically, because we don't know how we got the A. Everybody expects we're going to keep getting A's. We don't know if we're going to be able to get the whole system. Even giving a test, you know, when I gave it, I don't give tests anymore, but when I used to, I would be trying to find out what the students know. Mm. Most testing is to find out what you don't know, as Mm. if that thing you don't know is crucial. And I I think we've just got so much much of it wrong and leading us to see some people as more talented, some people as better. And then we have this normal distribution that I write about that mm-hmm. everybody just buys into. So a normal distribution, yeah, shaped like a bell. And mm-hmm. there are some people, oh, they're awful. Whatever we're measuring, they're terrible. Most people, middling. And then you have a few on the other end that are really good. And we put ourselves or let others put us, depending on the characteristic, on this distribution and just accept it. All of us can be talented. All of exactly. us helps. We even have it with health. There are some really healthy, most middle, and then some very unhealthy. As if, you know, it's a limited resource. We can all be extremely healthy. I'd love you to just transition a little bit over to anxiety and then also Mm -hmm. contagion. Maybe so we can do two little sections because I loved how you handled that. I believe that the major cause of illness is actually stress. And years ago, as I said before, the medical model didn't count, understand us as being bad for your health, just, you know, something uncomfortable. Now, study after study comes out showing how stress 
makes matters worse. I actually believe if people are given some dread diagnosis and, you know, let's give them two, three weeks to come to terms with it. And then we measured them over time, let's say every three weeks, every four weeks, we measured the degree of stress that that stress over and above genetics, treatment and nutrition, giant statement I'm making, would determine the course of the. Now, what people need to recognize is stress is a psychological concept. You become stressed when you believe something is going to happen. And when it happens, it's going to be awful. You can't predict. Prediction is an illusion. We don't have time to go through all of that, but I Mm -hmm. spend time in the mindful body discussing that. So if you said to yourself, very simply, what are three, five reasons that it might not happen? You're immediately going to become less stressed. But now let's assume it does happen. Events don't come prepackaged. Anything that happens has to be understood one way or the other. And the more mindful you are, the more alternative ways of understanding it Mm. you'll have. And so if you see how this thing is actually an advantage, not a silver lining, meaning that the main thing is there, but there's a small little upside. In equal measures, it's good, bad, or indifferent, depending on how you want to understand it, you will be less stressed. I have a one-liner that you might like, Carolina, and some of my friends have it on their refrigerator. Where I say, when you're feeling stress, ask yourself, is it a tragedy or an inconvenience? And almost like never that. is it a tragedy. You didn't get the project done. You were late picking up the kit, whatever it is. You know, so you say, gee, it's only an inconvenience. You take a breath and you just get on with things. And as Mark Twain said, almost all the things we worry about never happen. And you can even it's time you were stressed and did that thing happen. And persuade yourself from your own experience. So again, events don't cause stress. What causes stress is the view we take of them. Mm-hmm. We open it up and mindfully examine it. We have many more choices and the stress will dissipate. Mm, Well, I can't agree more. I mean, this is what I found in my research as well, but you've explained it so beautifully. You said that you don't have time to go into something. Well, I missed that because I think it was worth it. Oh, it's predictability. Prediction prediction is an illusion. Uh, Let me go into it. Yeah, go into it. It's so interesting. Yeah. People think they can predict because they're so good at looking back and making sense out of everything. But let's say you're at a party and you see Tom and Susie fighting. If I... Said to you right at that moment, are they going to get divorced? You say, what? People fight. How do I know? All right. But let's say we didn't ask you that. Now, two weeks later, you find out Tom and Susie are getting, oh, I knew it. You should have seen them go at each other at the party. All right. So if, if people mm-hmm. don't believe that you can't predict, just ask yourself, what am I going to say next? What's going to happen next? Is our internet connection going to go afoul? We just know. And so when you recognize that you don't, you organize yourself differently. Let, let me, I said to my students, I've been teaching a version of this class for over 40 years. I have never missed wow. a class. What is the likelihood I'll be here next week? So these are Harvard students. They say ridiculous things. They're very smart. Though. The first <laughs> one said 12. It's a small class. You know, 97%. How could they calculate? So they all give bizarre answers, but essentially are saying, I will be there a hundred percent without uttering it. Now I say, let's go around the room and I want everyone to give me a good reason why I might not be there. 
invariably the first person says, you've always been there. You decide you deserve the time off. The next person says your dog has to go to the vet. The next person says you got a flat tire. We get 12 really good reasons. Now I say to them, what is the likelihood I'm going to be here next week? And the 100% drops to 50%. Going forward, we have no idea what's going to happen. And because we control our experience of whatever happened, our understanding of whatever, we don't need to know what's going to happen next. And this leads to something else that we don't have time to talk about, but I go into great detail on uh, the mindful body, is about decision-making. Decision-making relies on our being able to predict, right? You have three alternatives and you're trying to figure out which of those three you should do. Well, mm-hmm. you think about the last time, the assumption is it's going to be like that again, and there's no way of knowing that. And so given that you can predict, yeah. given that every cost is a benefit, every benefit is a cost, you can't add them up and know what to do. And then 20 other things that I talk about, you should not be doing cost-benefit analyses to make your decisions. And it's these decisions that make us so stressed. My solution, which is going to seem bizarre, but I truly believe it, is instead of worrying about making the right decision, make the decision right. Wow. Flip a coin, choose the first thing. That, so again, I had another class. I said, okay, I want you to spend the week. Don't make any decision. Have a rule for yourself. Do the first thing that comes to mind. Do the last thing, you know, the last choice. Flip a coin, however it is, but don't make decisions. They came back the next week, all relaxed and reporting that it was a wonderful week. There was no stress. It just worked. You know, and I think that if we're trying to get rid of stress, we have to change our understanding about decision making. Let me summarize lots of what we said. If we want not to be stressed, we have to Mm -hmm. appreciate that what we do makes sense or else we wouldn't have done it. Same thing with the people around us. If we want not to be stressed, we need to be actively noticing and enjoying what exists for us because that mindful noticing is literally and figuratively enlivening. It's the essence of being engaged. It feels and it's good for us. And so with very little change, I think that people can be happier and a whole lot healthier than so many are. Oh, wow. Okay, so you just threw every counterintuitive way of thinking in this session together. And but, but is it really counterintuitive? Have you not just opened the natural way that we as humans function and we've actually well, it's, shifted. That, so. That's, so, that's so true, Carolyn. People are are not doing cost-benefit analyses, but they think they should be doing them, which adds another level of stress. And then when you make the decision and it doesn't work out, it's only because you haven't organized the your understanding of it sufficiently. To Then you have regrets, but regrets are mindless. Regret suggests that the alternative you didn't choose would have been better. You have no idea. Could have been worse. Could have been the same. Could have been better. We can't know because we can't predict. And again, when the more time you spend in the present, now remember, people say, be in the moment. It's a sweet, but it's an empty instruction. You know, what does it mean to nobody realizes that when they're not in the moment that they're not there? Just actively notice. and Actively um, notice. That's very key. Actively notice. So good. 
Wow, Ellen, I feel like we've just t- touched the tip of the iceberg. It was it was amazing. I I can't wait to continue the discussion. So it's not the end. It's just continue the discussion. Thank you so much for so much inspiration, so much wisdom, so much brilliance, and so much normal stuff that we should be doing. This is what we should be doing. This is the mm-hmm. truth. And so it, it, it's a sort of almost like it's free. It's so freeing and so exciting for me because it's honestly, it's, it, I don't even know what words to say. Thank you. It's brilliant, wonderful. And I cannot wait to talk again. So thank you for sharing with me today. It was an enormous pleasure for me as well. And I look forward to the next time. I can't wait. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline E. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.